And uh, I just invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, we are going to conclude this chapter uh, on our series of in, in thinking about and talking about the essence of Christian leadership. There's still some verses in chapter 2 that we're going to talk about next week, but this will conclude our series on what does it look like to be a Christian leader. And we've talked about this, and, and if I could just take a moment and review with you this morning that our desire to look at the life of Paul and to see what it means to live lives as Christians who lead in the world, to be the people that make an impact for the gospel's sake, for the sake of Christ, as we live in this world. So this applies to pastors, this applies to Sunday school teachers, this applies to bosses, this applies to employees, mothers, fathers, so on and so forth, because we have to have Christian leaders in this world. And as we're going to learn this morning, what we uh, oftentimes fail to realize is that we are constantly in a place in our lives where we are always learning from someone, something. You can learn political issues from the news. You can learn uh, social issues from friends or family. Um, you can learn spiritual things in, in, in media uh, types like movies and, and things, and you're learning them and you don't even realize it. Uh, I remember as a, a child, um, I used to watch and love Tom and Jerry. And Tom and Jerry was just, it was the, it's, it was the premium cartoon in, in my day, okay? Uh, they've come a long way since then. Thank you, Pixar and Disney, for doing uh, justice to what really Tom and Jerry could do with, with really no monologue, no, no words, just sounds and, and uh, constant death is basically what it was. But one thing that I learned about Tom and Jerry was is that um, when you died, when, when Jerry died or Tom died, they grew angel wings and they went to heaven and they became angels. And so in that moment as a child, I was learning a bad theology. And that theology was when you die, you become an angel. And so subconsciously, that's what I grew up thinking. And I remember a point in my life realizing that that was not true. And so we um, are, are constantly at this place in our life where we have to filter the things that are around us because information is coming and coming and coming at us. And we have to filter that and screen that with the Word of God. As a youth pastor for 10 years, what I began to see is that young people were not being taught by their mothers and their fathers because of jobs and things that kept them away from their children. They were being taught, especially the young men, they were being taught by video games. And last night at our, uh, at our men's uh, Bible study, we spent a great deal of time talking about the courage and the bravery that comes in front of a screen for a young man or a young woman even these days where they learn bravery to fight the alien invasion in their video game, but there's absolutely no realistic bravery or courage where young boys are acting like men in the world around us. They would, they would fight off the, the alien invasion on a screen, but they would never rescue a, a child that runs out into the street or a woman that has fallen in a parking lot and needs to be picked up because it's a dis... It's, a, it's a, 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 basically a break in reality. And so what we have to do in our world today is we have to be Christian leaders who invest in the people around us to be the good, godly, Christ-like examples and, and, and in a way mute the unspiritual, ungodly examples that they're receiving already. 
And a lot of times that takes intentionality. And see, that's what Paul is, is teaching us today. And, and, and the title of my message today is, What Does It Mean to Live as a Spiritual Father? So the title is Living as Spiritual Fathers. And this, doesn't, uh, this is not a Father's Day message because Paul is not talking to men only. Paul is talking to all of us and he's using the analogy of what fathers do for us in our lives. Now, let me just kind of make a disclaimer here that if you don't have a good relationship with your father, if you don't understand what a healthy relationship with a father looks like, you cannot, you cannot allow that to, to be presupposed in your understanding of God's Word, okay? You have a heavenly father that loves you and care for, cares for you and has sacrificed for you. Learn from his example. Let, let him be the one that, that gives us an understanding of what does it mean to be a spiritual father. If your father was abusive verbally or emotionally or physically, that's not a good definition. That's not what Paul is talking about. What we're focusing on is a, a, a spiritual father, a person that invests in the life of people and makes a great impact in their lives spiritually and physically and emotionally. And so we are going to kind of conclude this passage today. We've learned, if I could just review for a minute, we've learned a couple things about what it means to be a Christian leader. Number one, we talked about uh, a Christian leader has divine boldness. He's someone that is willing to stand up and to speak the truth to the world. He doesn't shy from the truth. He understands the truth, first of all. It is ingrained and injected into his life from the Word of God. And then he begins to, to take those bold steps in the world to speak the truth when truth is not there. Or to speak the truth when there's error. And so we talked about what it means to have divine boldness. And the second one we talked about is related to divine boldness, and that is a Christ-like integrity. Because people will not listen to what we say if they don't trust who we are in Christ. And so we have to, to live in the world as holy and innocent and blameless people before a world that is looking at us and, and holding us under a microscope, making sure that we abide by and live as Christ lived. And that's a difficult thing to do. And a lot of times, we don't ever fit to their standard because they don't understand grace. They don't understand that when we fall, Christ picks us up. And so what we have to understand is, we have to preach the gospel to our lives every day, knowing that when we fail, that God's grace is applied to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that fuels us or motivates us to carry on the work that He has given us, regardless of our failures. And so we talked about a Christian leader has uh, a Christian integrity in the workplace, in his home. He is trustworthy. He is honest. And then Paul goes on to talk about um, uh, one of his two illustrations. And this was two weeks ago. We talked about uh, a Christian leader is gentle. And he uses the illustration of a, a wet nurse or a nursing mother who cares not for the children that she's paid to care for, but the, the woman that cares for her own children with a gentleness, with a nurturing, with a care. And we talked about how important that is in the world today, a world that is brash and, and upfront with, with, with truth to the point that there's no love there. There, there's oftentimes an arrogance and there's not a gentleness, there's not a love that we desperately need in our lives. 
folks, the Christ was, uh, he, he personified love in this world. And so as we live in this world around uh, lost people, they should see the love of Christ shining forth in us. That's a love that is putting the needs of other people before ourselves. And, and so we come to this final um, illustration that Paul says in verse 12, and, and this is, or verse 9 through 12, and that's kind of where we're going to, to focus our time this morning. And this is living as spiritual fathers. Let me just read chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked day and night that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to, work in a, to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now there's three things I want us to focus on this morning. Three things that are pretty simple. They all begin with EX, and you have your notes there. Um, just to, to kind of focus on these and, and make these uh, memorable for you. Number one, exertion or work. Number two, example. And number three, exhortation. Exertion, example, and exhortation. Pretty simple, right? Here's what we're going to focus on. Paul, first of all, says that a spiritual father is one that is a hard worker. Is a hard worker. Look at what he says in, in verse 9. He says, Look, brothers, our labor and our toil, you remember that. He says, we worked day and night that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. Now, Paul speaks to these people in Thessalonica as their, his own children. Paul was notorious for this in his life, in his ministry. He called the people that he ministered to his children. He says, I'm your spiritual father and you are my children. doesn't mean that they didn't have fathers. It meant that I was the one that was governing and lording over your spiritual life, helping you, guiding you, directing you. In Timothy chapter 1, he calls Timothy, he says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. In Titus chapter 1 verse 4, he says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Constantly throughout his letters, Paul refers to the people, the churches, as his beloved children. And so in a strange and odd way, as a, a pastor of, of this flock, you guys are a spiritual children to me, which is odd in its sense because a lot of you guys are much older and wiser than I am. But that is the, 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 the calling that God has placed on my life, and I have to gra gravitate to that and hold tight to that and know that this is the responsibility that God has given me as a spiritual father to children. But in the same way, you likewise are spiritual fathers and children to each other. Because you guys often have lived in, li in, a, in a life and experience where you can minister the gospel message to people younger than you to help them where they struggle. Maybe you suffer in a way that someone is suffering in our church at this moment. You can be a spiritual father, male or female, to them at this moment in their life. Or maybe they can be that way to you. And so this is kind of the, the idea that Paul is, is, is bringing to us. And the first thing that he brings to the, to the forefront is this. As your spiritual father, I was a hard worker. And it's an amazing thing because 
in verse 9, Paul is not necessarily referring specifically to his work in the gospel ministry. He's actually talking about his work outside the church. Look at it. He says, we work day and night that we may not be a burden to you. What kind of burden is he talking about? He's talking about a financial burden. This is a key text for for bivocational ministry. This is a key text. This describes my life right now in the world that I live in. Where Paul says, look, you guys are a small church in this small Thessalonica area. You're not able to financially support me at this time. So I was not going to be a burden to you. I was not going to weigh you down with financial responsibility. So I worked day and night so that I would not do this while, he says, while we proclaim the gospel of God to you. And what is he teaching us here? He's teaching us that as spiritual fathers, one of the examples that we can manifest to people under us is that we are hard workers. And the, and the idea, the theology behind work is that God created us to be hard workers. Listen, folks, work is not a part of the fall. Work is not a consequence of the fall. Work just got harder after the fall. If I can point you back to Genesis chapter 3, you will see that when Adam and Eve came and were placed in the garden, God gave Adam in Genesis chapter 2 the responsibility to work. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, you can notate this in your notes or flip there. It says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And that word work there actually oftentimes is translated to till the ground. So if you've ever tried to till hard, difficult ground, I remember one time um, there was a project at our, at our previous church and, and uh, it was for my daughters in their homeschool class and they wanted to plant this nice little area that was just kind of overgrown with grass. And I didn't have an electric tiller. So I went out with one of those hand tillers, you know, where you just do it and twist. And I mean, I'm not talking like that was better than any type of, you know, uh, P90X or anything like that. I mean, I had like an ab workout, you know, that, that I should market and make a whole lot of money on. Because I mean, I was just like, and my hands were sweaty and they were, and they were blistering. And it was, exa- it was hard work. It was difficult work. And what I want us to see is that when, when, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, God's saying, look, you're going to work in this garden. It takes work to keep this garden up. Work was not the problem. The curse was actually not toward the work. The, the curse was on the ground. It was the ground that was cursed. Look in Genesis chapter 3. If you turn there, Genesis chapter 3 verse 17, <clears throat> look at what he says to Adam. He says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. So what happens? God curses the ground. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you are taken for uh, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what's the, what's the focus? The ground. The, that the work will be harder. That the work will be more difficult. And so when you're at work this week, and you have a difficult day, when you have a difficult day, our natural inclination is to complain, is to be discontent, 
And, and folks, can that point us to the gospel? Can we have a gospel moment there for a moment and go, you know what, thanks, thanks be to Jesus Christ who one day will come again and will remove hard work that is difficult. Thanks be to God that one day no longer will there have to be a, a difficulty as we work and we sweat and we ache and we, we have so much uh, trouble in, in, in the, the work environment. You know, the, the, the statistics don't lie. In, in 2013, a Gallup poll stated that over 70% of Americans were unhappy or disengaged in their workplace. 70%. And, and folks, the, the point that I'm trying to make is, number one, hard work is a part of our life today in this world, a, a sin-fallen world, but work is a part of God's design. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, did your parents ever tell you, money doesn't grow on trees? Did they tell you that? Moms and dads, did you say that to your kids? You know why? You know why it doesn't grow on trees? Because God didn't make it that way. He made it so that you could work. And earn that money. He made it so that you could take that money and use it for your good in this world and to glorify Him. But know what? another thing that I do want us to think about is that as God made us to work and to work hard, He also wants us to understand that in the, in the, the fruit of our work is, is, a, is a produce that is for His glory. Meaning, what we earn, the wages that we earn. Um, if you were a farmer back in the in biblical times, you 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 wouldn't sell your uh, your necessarily your trade as much as you would sell your animals or or whatever you raised. But the point is, is that what you sold goes back to God because it belongs to Him. It belongs to Him, and so the pro the product of our work belongs to God. It, it is just something that He has given us because He owns all things. And I think that's a difficulty in our day because we fall into the trap of thinking, look, I work hard for this money. This is my money. Folks, let me tell you, that's the, that's a, that's the lie from Satan. The lie from Satan to think that, that, that what we have belongs to us. That our children are ours. That, that our possessions are ours. All of it belongs to God. Amen. Right. He can take all those things away from us. But when we have an understanding that work is hard and, and it's, it's a part of our life today that we were made to work and that what we work for belongs to God, then we won't be discontent, but we will be happy and we will know that we are doing what God has designed for us to do. That this is His design. That He has made us to do these things for His glory. And so all of a sudden, giving money to a charity or to a church isn't a big issue for us because it's His money anyway. It was His plan for us to go and to work for the fields and to give a portion of that back to Him. And because we are thankful for what He has given us and because it belongs to Him anyway, we give back to the church. And so what's amazing to, in the life of Paul is Paul says, look, I work hard so that I'm not going to be a burden for you. But you know what's interesting is that he trusted in the financial support of other churches that could support him. He worked, but he worked and said, the Thessalonians, I will not be a burden for you. But he had churches that could establish him and help him and pay for his needs. Look in, uh, flip over to Philippians chapter 4. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. The Philippians were, in my opinion, the most generous church to Paul and his ministry. They were the ones, they were an established church, and they supported Paul's ministry. Look in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says to the Philippian church, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was, my kind, it, was, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Catch this, verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So how is Paul ministering in Thessalonica? Two ways. Number one, he's out there working. Acts chapter 18 tells us that Paul was a tent maker. He was out there building and shaping and making tents day and night, he says. And he did that so he wouldn't be a burden to the Thessalonians. So what happens? He receives money from his side job and he's receiving money from another more established, financially wealthy church that is able to supply all his needs. And so what does this teach us as spiritual fathers in, in our lives? Well, number one is that we should be willing to work hard because God designed us to do it. But number two is that we should be willing, we should be willing to supply the needs of people as we see fit, as we can, as it is healthy for us. Folks, listen, I have learned so much in the last year in my own personal life. I worked for 10 years in full-time ministry, and I'm going to be honest with you, I got really spoiled. I got really spoiled. I sat in my office every day. I, I did ministry. I, a lot of times I was disconnected with the world. I found myself, if, if lost people didn't come to me, I wasn't necessarily going to go to them unless it was like a, a, a programmed evangelism type ministry door to door. And what I've seen is the benefits of the life that Paul lived and the life that, I, that I'm allowed to live at this moment of my life is that I'm out there in the, in the lostness of the world every single day. And so by vocational ministry, folks, let me tell you, it's not a burden for me. Don't feel like that, oh, we're just not doing what we need to for Pastor Nathan. I'm going to tell you, it's been a blessing for us. It's been difficult. It's been a, a, an adjustment in our life. But I'm going to tell you, it has taught me so much. It has taught me so much about ministry. It has taught me so much about what, um, I, I guess, the blessings of serving in ministry and, 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 uh, and working in, in the world. 
Matter of fact, I found this article um, by a professor at Southeastern who gives a couple really great examples of why bivocational ministry is um, really beneficial for the church and for the minister. Listen to these things. He says, number one, bivocational ministers serve the church without being dependent upon them for all of its income. So what he's saying is a church doesn't necessarily, a bivocational pastor doesn't have to depend on the church for all of its income. If, if the church starts to struggle, if redemption starts to struggle, what happens? Well, I have another job or the other pastors here have other jobs so we can lean upon that income. But he also says that bivocational ministers are often more connected to non-believers. And I can testify to that. Listen, a lot of times, I'm going to be just real honest with you, I would have a mentality as a full-time pastor, what's wrong with these people? Why won't they show up on Wednesday or Tuesday or Thursday nights? I mean, what's their deal? Well, what I failed to realize, because I'm working in a full-time setting in a church, I failed to realize this eight-hour day that you work outside of ministry, you know, that, that you weren't all geared up all, all day long preparing and getting ready for that, that, that ministry or that, that program to run. And, and so he says, and he, he even mentions this, bivocational ministers likely better understand the struggles of lay people, how difficult it is to get there and to serve and to do those things. doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just helps us understand what the struggle is. Getting dinner on the table, getting your children ready, the difficulties of a secular work environment. He even says that it's also an opportunity, the opportunity invites us to challenge church members to consider God's calling on your life. And what he means by that is this maybe God's calling you to serve in, in the church in a setting and in a way you don't have to leave your full time job. Nobody, God may not be calling you to, to drop everything and, and get on a plane and go to Africa, but you can still serve as a leadership, in, in leadership as a pastor, in a way where you're still working your job and still serving the church with the gifts that God has given you. We have oftentimes made this disconnect in, the, in that idea. And the last and, the, and one of the best things that I think is bivocation ministers lead churches that often have a higher percentage of funds available for ministry and missions. Guys, my desire in this church is not to be a full-time pastor. That's not my desire. Is it a fleshly struggle for me? Are there days that I'm like, man, I wish I was full-time? Sure, but I'm going to be honest with you, those are always selfish desires. The truth is, is that if we can bring in godly pastors and elders in this church, pay them some, some money to, to lead and to serve while we all work bivocationally, let's do it. Because that allows money for missions, that allows money for, for leadership, that allows money to, to make an impact in this community, and God will provide and supply our needs. And so that's, that's not something that I'm gunning for. That's not something that I necessarily have to have because there are definitely benefits to bivocational ministry. Now let me explain to you one more thing that I, I, I think we rarely think about in this, in this idea here. Think about the future of church. Think about as the world becomes so ungodly and so secular, you know what's going to happen? Churches are just going to get smaller. The megachurches will die. Because, well, I'll tell you, the true megachurches will die. 
There will be megachurches of, of false teaching and false doctrine and people will flock to those. But the true churches, the ones that understand the gospel and are proclaiming the gospel, you know what's going to happen? They're going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And you know what? In the midst of that, more pastors are probably going to have to be bivocational. And you know what? They should be okay with that. Because in the end, if they have to work a full-time job and not get paid by the church, it's still their calling. <laughs> Look, if you, guys can, if, if you get to a point where we can't pay my salary anymore, that doesn't change my calling to pastor Redemption Community Church. I mean, I don't understand that. If God provides another way for our family, then let's do it. Now, my wife hasn't agreed to that, so... Uh, if you guys want to reduce my salary today, you know, that's y'all's, y'all's thing. But um, the point is, folks, and, 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 I, and I don't want to just focus on bivocational ministry, but, but the theme in, in general is, is working hard. Because what I want us to understand is because we work hard at work doesn't mean that we can't work hard in ministry. Life happens and ministry has to continue. If we are going to impact this community and this world, we have to be hard workers at work, being examples, sharing the gospel, and still devoting our time to the work of the ministry. Paul never said for us to equip the saints for the work of the ministry who don't have full-time jobs. He is implying that those people work and are still supposed to be equipped for the work of the ministry. Spiritual fathers work hard. Number two, As they work hard, as they work hard, they testify that they are hard workers and their conduct is holy, blameless, and righteous. That's what he says in verse 10. He says, you are witnesses. You see what we did and how we lived, he says. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct conduct towards you believers. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because Paul is just revisiting this idea of Christian integrity. He is being accused of being dishonest, of being deceitful, of being lazy, being idle. And and, and so all these are arguments just to refute what he has been uh, accused of. And so he says, look, you saw me work hard. You saw me honest. You saw me uh, seeking to, to bless you and not take money from you. He goes, I'm not greedy. I'm not trying to swindle you. I'm not a charlatan. I am here to devote my whole life to you. That's what gospel ministry is. And so he says, even in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be for your sake. And so what did these men do? They modeled three things. They modeled holiness, separating their lives from sin, they, they modeled righteousness. They had been made right in the eyes of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, and they continued to live righteous lives. And they were blameless. They were absent of blame. Their actions could not bring upon them blame that could be um, carried out before the lost world. They could not be blamed for evil, and it be held true. And so the, the idea that Paul is making, a simple truth is that as we live in the world, what we model for other people is a testimony for who we are in Christ. 
And so if we are working hard, people will see that, and they will see a holy, righteous conduct that is completely opposite to the world around us. I would say that, um, if I could, that, that the, the world uh, likes to personify idleness, laziness, unholiness, ungodliness. And so as Christians, employees, teachers, workers, families, we should just stand apart from that. And, and, and that people, like the, the Thessalonians, the, the Thessalonians, what they should see is that they should be witnesses of that in our lives. He says, you testify. You see it and God sees it that we are different. That we produce a godly example. This, uh, yesterday I was making a baby gate for, um, for our house. I was, I'm building a baby gate. And, um, and of course, you know, I'm out in the, in the garage because it's cold. And, and I'm, I'm building this thing. And, and Peter opens the door and he's got his plastic tool set with his <laughs> plastic saw. And he says, I'm going to help you, Daddy. And I'm thinking, all right, son, you know, this is going to take me twice as long, but, right. you know. And, and the point is, is that, that what he sees me doing, he wants to do. As his, as his biological father, I am representing for him. And he not only sees what I'm doing, but he wants to do what I do. And as spiritual fathers in this, in this congregation, the impact that you have on people will be how they see you live how they see you work, how they see the boldness in your life, how, how honest they see you. And it's a reflection not only upon your life, but it's a reflection upon Christ who supposedly dwells within us and consumes us. And so as we live as examples in the world, can I just encourage you to make a daily practice of what we call the mortification of sin? It's a long word that means that we will always struggle with sinfulness. We will always struggle to live holy lives when that unholy life still wants to beckon us and call us back into the the old ways that we once lived. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation, but that old life wants to lure you back in. And so daily we have to live in a way that's called killing or mortifying our sin. That killing and that mortifying is by the grace of God. It's found all throughout Scripture in words like put off and put on. Colossians chapter 3, if you would turn there with me. Colossians chapter 3 verse 8. Colossians 3 8 says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, Malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all, or Christ is all and in all. Put on these as God's Chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and so on. So what are the, what are the two actions there? Putting off the old self, putting on the new self. The new self is being renewed in the image of its creator. 
okay? So as we live as examples in the world, we can't go, praise the Lord, we're in Christ now. Let's sit back and just allow Him to transform us. But there's still responsibility on our parts to look in our lives every single day and say, there is sin in my life that I need to kill today. And I kill it by the grace of God. I kill it by the power of God. But He is the one that calls me to put off these old things. And I would recommend an author to you. Um, His name is Jay Adams. He's a biblical counselor. He speaks on great levels of this. And I even heard an interview yesterday. He spoke in chapel in Mid-America and he says, it's not enough to just put off. And that's the practice of many Christians today. Is that, oh, I have anger. I'm going to stop being angry. No, when we put off anger, we put on patience. We put on peace. We put on joy. When we put off covetousness, we put on contentment. Those are the, those are the practices of mortifying our sin. Killing and replacing. Jay Adams says this. He says, You must be in your day-to-day living what you are in Christ. The high calling of the Christian conferred upon him in Christ by which he is to reckon, uh, to reckon himself dead to sin but alive to God is still a powerful motivation to holy living. Putting on the uniform is itself a potent factor that the Holy Spirit uses to bring about change. And, and if I could phrase this another way, my father is a firefighter. He's retired from the city of Memphis. And my father did not go around before he was a fireman and start fighting fires in in the city of Memphis. Okay? He got the badge. He swore the oath. And that was his motivation for living as a firefighter lives. Even to the point that one day we dropped my sister off at the the gymnastics. He sees a fire. He's off duty. He's like, son, we're going to go over here. And he jumps out of the car. He tells me to sit in the car. And he goes and helps these guys fight this fire. And he's an off-duty fireman that day. And my mind's like, uh, you know, is the van going to catch on fire? You know, I mean, I was, I was young. But the point is, is that the badge motivates him. Well, the badge for us is being in Christ. And so because we are in Christ, the motivation then is to put off and put on the sinfulness and the godliness in our lives. Spiritual fathers are good examples. And last but not least, spiritual, and fa- spiritual fathers are willingly teach the truth. Look in verse 12, or verse 11. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory. I don't know about you, but I never wanted to be the dad that gave the 30-minute lecture when you didn't do something right, and I have become that person. You know what I mean? You do something wrong and you don't get like, you know, just kind of the readjustment. You get like this sermonette on that issue. You guys, can you relate? Dads, are you, are you those people? But I think that with, within us, when we have the truth in us, we want to teach that truth to other people. And it could be the truth of anything. How to properly load a dishwater, a dishwasher. How to build a fence. How to understand this passage in Scripture. It's truth, and the truth has to go forth. And so as spiritual fathers, we must be willing to not just know the truth, but willing to teach it. And he says, as a a father with his children, we exhorted you. 
This means we speak the truth to you. We commanded you in truth. That word exhort means to call to someone's side. And I always think of this verb in the, in the New Testament as a, as a, a guy in battle, a, a soldier in battle, and, and he's like on the front lines and he's, he's down in the foxhole and, and he's firing and, and he realizes that his comrades in arms are, 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 have been shot and they're down. And so what does he do? He looks behind and he says, come on up to the front lines with me. That is, that is the, the understanding of, of exhorting the truth is saying, hey, come and understand these truths with me. That's exhortation. Not to say, hey, come do what I'm not doing. Exhortation is not, hey, you, go up to the front lines. I'm going to sit back here in this very safe bunker. But instead he's saying, come up here with me. And that's what exhortation is. Knowing the truth and saying, hey, come alongside me and practice this with me. That's what spiritual fathers do. They model the truth and they speak the truth in love. But not only that, he says, uh, he uses another word here. He says, not only did we exhort you, but we encouraged you. That word means we comforted you. How many times have you taught your child something and, and they didn't get it? Or they really messed up with it? It's this idea of, of teaching along with love. And, and so there's truth, but there has to be love. And so truth is connected to love. And so we think, oh, well, mamas give us love and daddies give us truth. But the truth is, is that when we speak truth, we are speaking it because we love you. And so when I preach, I preach to say, come alongside me and grab these, uh, these truths in your own life, believe them and practice them. But I'm also saying I, I teach you these things because I care for you. And I want to, like a nursing mother, do that with gentleness and love. But my act of teaching is in love. And so you and I have opportunities to be spiritual fathers to people to say, hey, come alongside me, practice what I, I practice, live as Christ lived, and, and, and do this with me, and I do this because I love you. And I don't know of any greater uh, action that we can do but to live and to teach in love. John, 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word and deed or word and talk, but in deed and in truth. John goes on further to talk about these actions that are connected to truth are also connected to love because love is manifested when we speak truth. In this last word that Paul uses in verse 12, he says, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, and we implored you, or we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. This is the, the, the most emphatic word in this list. And it basically says, we pleaded with you. We did not just call you to the front, but we begged you to believe and to follow and to walk in a manner that God is, uh, that, that brings worthiness to God or brings glory to God. Matter of fact, it's a way that, that uh, in, in, in my evangelistic practice, when I go and share the gospel, um, I, a lot of times um, early on, I was, I was guilty of sharing the gospel and just going, you know, I, I hope you'll understand those things and believe in them and, uh, you know, pray for them. And, 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 and I was convicted of those things. And so I began to, to get to this point at the end where I, I, I plead with people. I'm like, would you please, like, I, I'm not going to force you to, to do something at this moment if you're, if you're not willing to do it, but I'm begging you to understand that Jesus Christ sacrificed his life for you. He died for you. Would you please believe this and be saved? 
Would, would, would you, in, in a sense, I'm, I'm, I'm urging you to insist upon the gospel with people. Insist upon it. Amen. Matter of fact, uh, our insistence with the gospel needs to be more like a doctor urging a remedy than a salesman selling products that just enhance our life. That's what needs to be the difference. And insist and say, would you please take this? It will save you. Not, hey, would you try this product? It may make your life a little better. That's a big difference. And so Paul, in, in in a complete and total act of love, insists and says, please, would you please walk in a manner worthy of God? Because he understands the suffering and the trials that we will go through. He understands those things. He understands the the imprisonment and the beatings, and he knows that the world is looking at us. And so he urges them, he says, please walk in a manner worthy of God because you will face trials. He says this in chapter 1, how they will face trials, they will face sufferings as he faced sufferings. And so he's asking us to walk in a manner that, that is worthy of God. And so what we see from this is Paul's desire as a spiritual father to insist upon the truth of the gospel, to insist upon the truth in our lives, not casually glance over it, but forcefully teach it and be persistent with it. And then, of course, he concludes in a way that Paul just does. He always takes it back to a theological truth and he says, He charges us to walk in a manner worthy of God who, God, who calls you into His own kingdom and His glory. Why do we live in a manner worthy of God? Why are we insistent with the gospel? Why do we uh, speak with divine boldness? Why do we do all these things and live in the world as Christ um, has called us to live? Because God has called us to salvation. Because it is a calling that God has specifically placed on your life to be saved. It is a privilege, it is an honor to come and know the Savior of the world, to know the Creator of the world. God did not have to save you. He did not have to save Adam and Eve in the garden. He could have ended them and started over. That was not His plan. His plan was to bring the gospel through Jesus Christ and to bring the gospel into our lives and to say, I am coming to look to you and to save you. And what an amazing privilege to not only know Christ, but to have the responsibility to take that gospel to the world. What a privilege. He calls you into His own kingdom and His glory. And so let that be the motivation God's special love for you and for me. God's special love to say, I loved you, I called you out of darkness into marvelous light, now will you serve me? And so let me ask you just a couple questions this morning. Have you been saved by the grace of God? Has Christ saved you and lavished His love upon you so that you know that you believe in Christ, that He has washed away your sin? Can I challenge you this morning Can I challenge you this morning to intentionally be spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers with people in your life? Not not fathers and mothers. I'm not not asking you to mentor someone and teach them wood shopping tools or woodworking tricks or how to fix a commode. Those are great. What I'm asking you to do is to be spiritual fathers and mothers. Ultimately, what I'm asking you to do is to go and make disciples 
of all nations. And I think that's what the Scripture commands us to do. And it's a responsibility that we have to impact the people around us with the truth of the Gospel for His own glory. Let's pray. As you bow your heads, I just want to challenge you this morning. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't know for sure that Christ has saved you, can I just remind you again that the Bible says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that if you don't have Christ in your life, you stand guilty before a holy God. And that guiltiness has to be punished. God has to punish sin. And yet there is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. He will save you. He will redeem you. He will take that sin and He will wash it away. The Bible says that to, to be saved, to, to, to trust in Him, we must believe in who Jesus is. That He was God in the flesh. That He came in this world and He lived a perfect life. And that He died and paid the penalty for your sin. And that He rose victoriously from the dead. The Bible says that if we believe in that and we turn away from the sinfulness in our lives, we will be saved. We call that faith and repentance. So if you're not a believer this morning and you want that forgiveness through Jesus, would you turn from your sin and trust in what Jesus Christ has done today?